And other astronomers either say there was a primordial explosion, an enormous bang millions of years ago, billions of years ago, which flung all the galaxies into space. Well, let's take that just for the sake of argument and say that was the way it happened. It's like uh, you took a bottle of ink and you threw it at a wall. Smash, and all that ink spreads. And in the middle, it's dense, isn't it? And as it gets out on the edge, the little droplets are finer and finer and make more complicated patterns. See? So in the same way, there was a big bang in the beginning of things, and it spread. And you and I, sitting here in this room, as complicated human beings, are way, way out on the fringe of that bang. We are the complicated little patterns on the end of it. Very interesting. But so we define ourselves as being only that. If you think that you are only inside your skin, you define yourself as one very complicated little curly cue, way out on the edge of that explosion, way out in space and way out in time. Billions of years ago, you were a big bang. But now you're a complicated human being. And when then we cut ourselves off like this and don't feel that we are still the big bang, but you are. actually, if, if this is the way things started, if there was a Big Bang in the beginning, you're not something that is a result of the Big Bang on the end of the process. You are still the process. You are the Big Bang, the original force of the universe coming on as whoever you are. See, when I meet you, I see not just what you define yourself as, Mr. So-and-so, Miss So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so. I see every one of you as the primordial energy of the universe coming on at me in this particular way. I know I'm that too. But we've learned to define ourselves as separate from it. And so what I would call a kind of a basic problem we've got to go through first is to understand that there are no such things as things. That is to say, separate things or separate events. That that is only a way of talking. If you can understand this, you're going to have no further problems.
I once asked a group of high school students, what do you mean by a thing? And first of all, they gave me all sorts of synonyms. They said it's an object, which is simply another word for a thing. It doesn't tell you anything about what you mean by a thing. Finally, a very smart girl from Italy who was in the group said a thing is a noun. And she was quite right. say now find out the way you must do it and go that way now this is a general principle of an art and we will find there is a kind of uh, there are limits to this art and uh, how it can be used and so forth but once the general principles are clear there aren't many serious problems left that if you begin to look at it in that you will begin to realize that ecstasy by one road or another is inevitable. That indeed ecstasy is in a way the nature of existence. There is a universe for the simple reason that it's ecstatic. What else is all this fireworks about? It, it is just like music in this ecstatic thing going off. And you have to be uh, certainly careful in a little way here that any initiation into a deep wisdom is apt at first to demotivate you. You think, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> and all these projects, building this up and that up, or doing something to save the world, or so on and so forth. Why, that whole thing is nonsense. Yes. If you stick there, that's what they call in Mahayana Buddhism, the Pratyeka Buddha. That means the private Buddha, as distinct from Bodhisattva, who comes back into everyday life, as they say, for the liberation of all other sentient beings. Because when you know that uh, all this is all right anyway, and that the situation is inevitable ecstasy, I mean, you're going to get it one way or another. Then <laughs> you say, well, what was all the fuss about? You know? The fact remains 
that a lot of people just don't know that and are really hating life, not knowing how to handle hate. And if you are at a certain point, you know those other people are you. extended body and all these were nerve ends on the end of it, you see. However, you know also that you can't really show them anything they don't already know and won't be able to show them anything else until they know it. <laughs> but then the question, what shall I do, has now disappeared. It should have disappeared in the beginning because there wasn't any real eye, there was just the happening. suchness or tathata and it's a happening it doesn't happen to you because where is that you what you call you is part of the happening <laughs> or an aspect of it. it has no parts it's not like a machine and it's a little scary because You'd say, well, who's in control around here? Why should there be anyone? Now, that's an, a very weird notion we have that processes require something outside them to control them. It never occurred to us that processes could be self-controlling. 
even though we say to someone, control yourself. We can always, in order to think about self-control, we split a person in two. So that there's a you separate from the self that's supposed to be controlled. Well, how can that achieve anything? How can a noun start a verb? Yet it's a fundamental superstition that that can be done. So you have this process, which is quite spontaneous, going on. We call it life. It's controlling itself. It's aware of itself. It's aware of itself through you. looks at itself and because of it's the universe looking at itself through you there's always an aspect of itself that it can't see so it is like that snake you see that is pursuing its tail because the snake can't see its head like you can't we always find as we investigate the universe make the microscope bigger and bigger, and we will find ever more minute things. Make the telescope bigger and bigger and bigger, and the universe expands because it's running away from itself. It won't do that if you don't chase it. You only have to understand that you can't do anything about it. And as they say in Zen, you cannot take hold of it, but you can't get rid of it. And in not being able to get it, you get it. So all these trials that gurus put their students through have as their ultimate object convincing you that you can't do anything. A guru gives people exercises, A, that are difficult but can be accomplished, and B, that are impossible. 
you'll always be hung up on the impossible ones, but the possible ones, you will feel, get a feeling of making progress so that you will double your efforts to solve the impossible exercises. And then they range things in many, many ranks and levels through which you can advance this state of consciousness, that state of consciousness, or think of the degrees of masonry, or so on. Ranks in learning things, the different belts you get in judo, and all that kind of jazz. You can do that. And it gives people the sense of competing with themselves, or even with others. Because of the feeling inside that there is just something I'm missing. And of course, if you are learning any sort of skill, and you haven't perfected the skill, there is indeed something you're missing. But in this thing that we're talking about, that isn't true. Because you, as the Buddhists say, are Buddhas from the very beginning. see and therefore might conceivably imagine that you're lost. So that indeed is the point, that we don't see what looks and therefore we think we've lost it. And so we're in search of the self, the Atman. Well that's the one thing we can't find <laughs> because we have it. We are it, <laughs> but we confuse it with all these images. One thing, the idea of a difference between matter and spirit. This idea doesn't work anymore. Long, long ago, physicists stopped asking the question, what is matter? 
they began that way. They wanted to know what is the fundamental substance of the world. And the more they asked that question, the more they realized they couldn't answer it. Because if you're going to say what matter is, you've got to describe it in terms of behavior. And that is to say in terms of form, in terms of pattern. You tell what it does. You describe the smallest shapes of it that you can see. Atoms, electrons, protons, mesons, all sorts of sub-nuclear particles. But you never, never arrive at the basic stuff. Because there isn't any. is a word for the world as it looks when our eyes are out of focus, fuzzy. Stuff, the idea of stuff is that it's undifferentiated as some kind of a goo. Hmm? And when your eyes are not in sharp focus, everything looks fuzzy. When you get your eyes into focus, you see a form, you see a pattern. And so all that we can talk about is patterns. There is any such thing at all as intelligence and love and beauty. Well, you found it in other people. In other words, it exists in us as human beings. And as I said, if it is there in us, it is symptomatic of the scheme of things.
we are as symptomatic of the scheme of things as the apples are symptomatic of the apple tree or the rose of the rose bush. The earth is not a big rock infested with living organisms any more than your skeleton is bones infested with cells. The earth is geological, yes, but this geological entity grows people and our existence on the earth is a symptom of the solar system and its balances as much as the solar system in turn is a symptom of our galaxy and our galaxy in its turn is a symptom of the whole company of galaxies. Goodness only knows what that's in. When, as a scientist, you describe the behavior of a living organism, you try to say what a person does. It's the only way in which you can describe what a person is. Describe what they do. Then you find out that in making this description, you cannot confine yourself to what happens inside the skin. In other words, you can't talk about a person walking unless you start describing the floor. Because when I walk, I don't just dangle my legs in empty space. I move in relationship to a room. And so in order to describe what I'm doing when I'm walking, I have to describe the room. I have to describe the territory. So in, in, in de describing my talking at the moment, I can't describe this just as a thing in itself because I'm talking to you. And so what I'm doing at the moment is not completely described unless your being here is described also. So if that is necessary, if in other words, in order to describe my behavior, I have to describe your behavior and the behavior of the environment, it means that we've really got one system of behavior. involves what you are. I don't know who I am unless I know who you are. And you don't know who you are unless you know who I am. There was a wise rabbi once said, if I am I because you are you, and you are you because I am I, then I am not I and you are not you. In other words, we are not separate. We define each other. We're all backs and fronts to each other. You know, uh, you can't, for example, have two sticks. You lean two sticks against each other and they stand up because they support each other. 
take one away and the other falls. They interdepend. And so in exactly that way, we and our environment and all of us and each other are interdependent systems. We know who we are in terms of other people. We all lock together. And this is again and again the serious scientific description of how things happen. And any good scientist knows, therefore, that what you call the external world is as much you as your own body. doesn't separate you from the world, it's a bridge through which the external world flows into you and you flow into it. Just for example as a whirlpool in water, you could say because you have a skin you have a definite shape, you have a definite form, all right? Here is a, a flow of water and it suddenly it does a whirlpool and then it goes on. The whirlpool is a definite form but no water stays put in it. The whirlpool is something the stream is doing. And exactly the same way, the whole universe is doing each one of us. And I see you today, and I recognize you tomorrow, just as I would recognize a whirlpool in a stream. I'd say, oh yes, I've seen that whirlpool before. It's just near so-and-so's house on the edge of the river, and it's always there. So in the same way, when I meet you tomorrow, I recognize you, you're the same whirlpool you were yesterday. But you're moving. The whole world is moving through you. All the cosmic rays, all the food you're eating, the stream of steaks and milk and uh, eggs and uh, uh, everything is just flowing right through you. When you're wiggling the same way, the world is wiggling, the stream is wiggling you. But the problem is, you see, we haven't been taught to feel that way. I want. 
The answer is, I don't know. When Bodhidharma was asked, who are you? Which is another form of the same question. He said, I don't know. Planting flowers to which the butterflies come. Bodhidharma says, I know not. I don't know what I want. Well, when you don't know what you want, you've re reached the state of desirelessness. When you really don't know. Do you see, there's a, there's a beginning stage of not knowing and there's an ending stage of not knowing. In the beginning stage, you don't know what you want because you haven't thought about it. Or you've only thought superficially. Then when you, somebody forces you to think about it and go through and say, yeah, I think I'd like this, I think I'd like that, I think I'd like the other, that's the middle stage. Then you get beyond that. Say, is that what I really want? In the end you say, no, I don't think that's it. I might be satisfied with it for a while and I wouldn't turn my nose up at it, but it's not really what I want. Why don't you really know what you want? Two reasons that you don't really know what you want. Number one, you have it. Number two, you don't know yourself because you never can. The Godhead is never an object of its own knowledge. Just as a knife doesn't cut itself, fire doesn't burn itself, light doesn't illumine itself. It's always an endless mystery to itself. I don't know. And this I don't know, uttered in the infinite interior of the spirit, this I don't know is the same thing as I love, I let go, I don't try to force or control. It's the same thing as humility. And so the Upanishads say, if you think that you understand Brahman, you do not understand. And you have yet to be instructed further. that you do not understand, then you truly understand. For the Brahman is unknown to those who know it, and known to those who know it not. And the principle is that any time you, as it were, voluntarily let up control, in other words, cease to cling to yourself, you have an access of power. Because you're wasting energy all the time in self-defense. Trying to manage things, trying to force things to conform to your will. The moment you stop doing that, that wasted energy is available. Therefore, you are, in that sense, having that energy available, you are one with the divine principle. You have the energy. When you're trying, however, to act as if you were God, 
that is to say you don't trust anybody and you're the dictator and you have to keep everybody in line you lose the divine energy because what you're doing is simply defending yourself say, I don't have the courage to give it away. I'm afraid. And you can only overcome that by realizing you better give it away because there's no way of holding on to it. The meaning of the fact, you see, that everything is dissolving constantly, that we're all falling apart, we're all in a process of constant death, and that uh, the world we hope men set their hearts upon turns ashes or it prospers and like snow upon the desert's dusty face lighting a little hour or two is gone, you know, all that Omar Khayyam jazz. <laughs> you know, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the great globe itself, I, all which it inherits, shall dissolve and like this insubstantial pageant faded leave not a rack behind. All falling apart. Everything is. That's the, the great assistance to it. See, that, that fact that everything is in decay is your helper. That is allowing you that you don't have to let go because there's nothing to hold on to. <laughs> it's achieved for you, in other words, by the process of nature. So once you see that uh, you just don't have a prayer, it's all washed up, and that you will vanish and leave not a rack behind, really get with that, suddenly you find you have the power, this enormous access of energy. do momentarily slip into some sort of a mystical experience, uh, you become aware of this tremendous gamesmanship going on. Uh, and you see it as sort of continuous with, the, with all sorts of cosmic games that are going on, 
of uh, creatures eating other creatures up and uh, the creatures that get eaten of course transform themselves into the creatures that eat them and then in turn uh, eat other creatures and uh, you, you see the whole hide-and-seek game going on and then you realize very clearly that the state of development that you are in now is uh, no better and no worse than anybody else's state because it's like uh, space again which planet is in or which star is in the best position well it's all equal Any point on a sphere is the center of the surface of the sphere. So, in, a, in the same way, everybody, in all his behavior, whatever he's doing, whether we call him from a certain point of view sick, or whether we call him healthy, whether we call him good or bad, neurotic, normal, psychotic, sane, uh, all the manifestations are just like uh, the leaves on the trees. And uh, in each uh, being in a unique way is, as Christians would say, manifesting the will of God. So, there really, from that point of view, there is nothing to do to attain Buddhahood. Nothing at all. But you see, that's very difficult to understand because a lot of people, when they hear that there's nothing to do, try to do nothing. <laughs> and you can't. Because you are karma, and karma means action. You can't do nothing. But uh, the thing you're looking for, or think you're looking for, is what you're doing is what's called you.
Only, of course, as we all know, uh, we've got ourselves into the idea that oneself is so difficult to see. Because it's like, uh, as I've often said, trying to bite your own teeth or look into your own eyes, and you can't find it. It's always behind. It's like your head is, uh, from the optical point of view, a blank space. Neither light nor dark. It's right in the middle of everything. So, one of the great tricks of gurus is to set people looking for their heads. There's a famous story of a king in India in ancient times called Yajnadatta. And one morning he woke up and reached out for his mirror and brought it over. No head. He was looking at the wrong side of the mirror. And you know, he was kind of bleary-eyed and had a hangover. So he summoned servants and said, ye gods, I've lost my head, find it. And uh, they said, but your majesty, it's there on your shoulders. He said, it is not. I can't see it in the mirror. Nobody can show me my head. So they were rushing all over the place, looking for the head. Now the trick to that is, of course, that uh, you are perfectly well aware of your head, only not in a form in which you expect to be aware of it. You expect to be aware of your own head in the same way as you're aware of other people's heads. But that wouldn't be true of you because you've got an inside view on your head. You have an outside view on other people's heads because, of course, you're taking an inside point of view. But the way in which you are aware of your head is in terms of what you are seeing and hearing. Because all sights and all sounds are what the nerves inside your head are doing. That's how to be aware of one's head. You are aware, therefore, of yourself, the mysterious self that you have, in terms of experience. Because there isn't really any difference.
But that always escapes people, you see. So perpetually, so long as you don't understand that, you can be talked into going on to all kinds of weird excursions. And just so long as you believe it, you're a sucker. You're hooked. And it takes a tremendous inner confidence and nerve finally to say, hey, don't pull that stunt on me anymore. I, I, I see through your game. Gurus are very clever at putting you down, but they're just trying to see how strong you are, testing you out, see if they can hoodwink you. So long as they can, you see, they're going to go on doing it because they're going to get you to the point where they can't do it to you anymore. Then they'll graduate. And so uh, one of Rinzai's students, after he saw through it, said, well, there wasn't much in Rinzai's Buddhism after all. Of course there wasn't. He said boldly and straight out, my teaching is just like using an empty fist to deceive a child. something here. The child goes into all kinds of um, tizzy to get you to open your hand and show what it is and then there's nothing. Fooled. So you, so you, you can be fooled as long as you can be fooled. <laughs> when you can't be fooled, you don't ask the question anymore because it's all become clear. It's all become clear that there is no puzzle about this universe.
What makes you think there are puzzles about this universe? Very simple reason. You're trying to explain it. And when you explain things, what, you would, what do you mean by explanation? There are several meanings of explanation. There's really one basic meaning. But first of all, to be able to translate what is happening into terms of words or numbers. In other words, to describe. But a real explanation is not just a description. It's a description which enables us to control what we are describing. But didn't we see in the last session that to control the world is not really what we want to do. So that if all explanations have as their function enabling us to control things, then maybe an explanation isn't what we wanted. And furthermore, you can very simply see that what makes things complicated is explaining them. When somebody explains to you how a flower works, and he's a great botanist, and analyzes all the innards of a flower, and shows the channels, the fibers, the processes of reproduction, and uh, so on that go on in it. Everybody stands fascinated. See how complicated that is. How clever God must have been to create that flower, to have all that complexity going. It isn't complicated at all. It's only complicated when you start thinking about it. Because the vehicle of words is a very clumsy one. And when you try to talk about the processes of nature, what is complicated is not the processes of nature, but trying to put them into words. That's as complicated as trying to drink up the ocean with a fork. It takes forever. And so this intense complexity that we see in everything is created by our attempt to analyze it all. And so what we do is, you see, when we analyze, 
We use our eyes and ears as scalpels. And we dissect everything. And we have to put a label on every piece we chop off. And so we scalpelize and we get it right down to atoms. Getting finer and finer and we suddenly thought, well, we've got to the end of it because the word atom means what is not cuttable. Atomos. Uh, but then we found we could cut the atom. And lo and behold, big fleas had little fleas upon their backs to bite them. And it goes on forever. There is no end to the minuteness which you can unveil through physical investigation. For the simple reason that the investigation itself is what is chopping things into pieces. And the sharper you can sharpen your knife, the finer you can cut it. knife of the intellect is very sharp indeed and the sophisticated instruments that we can now make there's probably no limit to it but in a way all that is vain knowledge in a way because you see it, it, what it does is it gives you the illusion that you've solved your problems when you have controlled certain things and you have solved certain problems, practical problems, you say, fine, more of that, please. Let's go on solving problems. And then you do. I was in Zurich and there met a most extraordinary man by the name of Karlfried von Dürkheim. He was a former German diplomat who had studied Zen in Japan. And when he came back after the war, he opened a meditation school and retreat in the Black Forest. And he said, well, I tell you what, a lot of my work has to do with people who went through spiritual crises during the war. And he said, you know, uh, we, we, we all know that when a person's in an absolutely extreme situation and they accept it, there is a possibility of a natural satori, 
And that's what I mean when I was explaining that when one gets to an extreme, that is to say, to the point where you realize that there is nothing you can do about life, nothing you could not do about life, then you're the mosquito biting the iron bull. Well, so in the same way, he said, look, you heard a bomb coming at you. You could hear it whistle. And you knew it was right above you and headed straight at you and that you were finished. And you accepted it. And suddenly, there was a strange feeling that everything is absolutely clear. You suddenly see that there isn't a grain of dust in the whole universe that's in the wrong place. That you understand completely, absolutely, totally, what it's all about. Because you can't say what it is. But he said, in so many cases, the bomb was a dud and they lived to tell the tale. Or he said, you were in a concentration camp. You've been there so long that you gave up all hope whatsoever, ever getting out. You were just going through this miserable, boring, degrading grind, week after week after week. Nobody paid the slightest attention to as an individual. You knew you would never get out, and you accepted it. And suddenly, something changed. This extraordinary feeling of freedom. a displaced refugee. You had lost your family. You didn't know whether they even existed. You were miles from your home. You didn't know whether it existed. You had lost your job, your very identity. You were absolutely nowhere. And you accepted it. And suddenly, you were as light as a feather and free as the air. Now he said, so many people have had those experiences and they talk about them to their families and friends and they say, oh, well, you were under terrific pressure and you probably had some hallucination, you know? Well, he said, I am showing those people that so far from having a hallucination, those were the few, few occasions in which they woke up. So, you see, this is always the opportunity presented by death. that if one can go into death with eyes open and have somebody help you if necessary to give up before you die, this extraordinary thing can happen. So that from your standpoint in that position at that time, you would say, I wouldn't have missed that opportunity for the world. Now I understand why we die. The reason we die is to give us the opportunity to understand what life's all about. By letting go. Because then we come to a situation that the ego can't deal with. When 
we are no longer hypnotized by that, then our natural consciousness can see clearly what all this universe is for. So therefore, we have missed this golden opportunity by institutionalizing death out of the way. Instead of having a socially understood acceptance of death and rejoicing in death. Now I could imagine that uh, one person would want to rejoice in death in an entirely different way from another. Like, um, say, a wedding is a rite of passage. Uh, there are certainly some forms of celebrating a wedding which I would find a total bore and quite offensive. Other ways would be very good, I would enjoy it. So everybody, in other words, I'm not saying that you've got to get mixed up with a lot of people coming, laughing around you and giving you presents and cards and everything because you're going to die. <laughs> but I'm only indicating a general thing, that the doctor, the, the, the ministers, the psychiatrists, and above all, us, really owe it to our friends to work out an entirely new approach to death. Because what has happened, you see, from earliest childhood, the child learned that great-uncle was dying and saw the family put on long faces and say, oh, that's too bad. Even Christians who think they're going to go to heaven, you know, they get absolutely morbid, more so than anybody else about death, because heaven, as they all know, is a very boring place. And so this frightful thing, one understands that for the living to lose someone you love or even for a dying person to worry about what on earth my wife my children my whatever are going to do without me one can understand a certain worry in that but nobody is indispensable and there comes a point when you have to say, I'm sorry, but I am completely going to abandon responsibility for anything. Because there is no further way I can do it. This is another way of that surrender. And then the curious thing that occurs is the moment all that is dropped, suddenly it dawns on you. that to be important, existence does not have to go on any longer than a moment. Quantitative continuity is of no value. How long can you hold your breath? Who cares? <laughs> so, it follows from that, you see, that if any one of us, without being shocked into it by being bombed or put in a concentration camp, could at this moment be as one about to die. Genuinely and honestly, we would understand the mystery of life.
because death is the, in a certain sense, the source of life.